0: My house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people of the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed." And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve. And his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with them, with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the, words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So, Joshua sent the people away, every man, to his inheritance. A powerful section here at the end of Joshua. What we're going to see in this first stop in Joshua 24 is a command, and it is this, choose this day Whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. You see, what Joshua does is he summarizes the entire history of Israel up until this point in the Bible. And he summarizes the people's disobedience and their ineptitude and God's faithfulness to rescue them, to save them, and to place them in a land. And Joshua charges Israel the chosen people of God with a very specific charge. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, the gods of your fathers, the gods of the land of the other nations around them, or the one true God of the Bible, the one who called Abraham, the one who gave Abraham descendants, the one who gave him Isaac and Jacob, the one who gave them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. You can serve the gods of the people, or you can serve the one true God. Choose this day whom you will serve. The choice is the same for you and I today. Serve the one true God of the Bible, or serve the false gods this world presents. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, false gods. I haven't seen any of my neighbors worshiping Baal recently. I haven't seen any of my neighbors with an Astaroth pole in their living room or in their yard or anything like that. There are no false gods in our culture. Brian, what are you talking about? Well, let me offer just three that in my mind are very clear false gods in our culture So again, these are three false gods worshipped today in Jacksonville, North Carolina. I would also argue they are three false gods that you and I struggle. We sometimes want to serve them instead of the one true God. The first one, the love of money and or possessions. The love of money and or possessions. You see, money and or stuff in and of itself is not a false god, but the love of money is. The worship of money is. Believing the lie that you will be truly happy in life if you will just have a little bit more money or a little bit more stuff or maybe just a little bit newer stuff or a little bit nicer, fancier stuff, if we could just have a little bit more, if you believe that lie. This is a false god. You can choose to follow its, or you can choose to follow the one true God of the Bible. You cannot serve both. Jesus is crystal clear on this point. In both the gospel of Matthew and Luke, he says quite simply, you cannot serve both God and money. Second, I've got lots of different words for this one. It's the same kind of concept. Power popularity, fame, celebrity, whichever word sticks best for you, you could jot down power, popularity, fame, celebrity. This is this idea, you just need people to recognize you. You need people to know you. You need that promotion into that position. If I could just get that position, if I could just get that rank or that position or that place at the table, if I could get any of that, then I'd be okay. You need your boss to tell you that you're great. It's not just enough to do a good job. You need somebody to affirm that you're doing a good job. You need power. You need respect. You not only need those things, you need other people to acknowledge that you have those things. You need people to do exactly what you say, exactly when you say it. And you don't, there's, you just need a little bit more. You always need a little bit more. That's the reality of false gods they always ask a little bit more of you this is a false god going after pain popularity fame or sorry power popularity fame and celebrity it's a false god you can serve it today you can put all your eggs in that basket you can move towards uh, fame and popularity you can go to that and serve that and sacrifice that or You can serve the one true God of the Bible. You cannot serve both. Third is sex. Similar to money, sex in and of itself is not evil. In fact, sex is a good gift from the Lord. However, refusing to serve God, who by the way invented sex, refusing to serve God with your sexuality and instead doing whatever you please is serving a false God. So, you can serve an idolatrous view and practice of sexuality, or you can serve the one true God of the Bible. You cannot do both. You and I need to hear Joshua's plea this morning. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you continue to serve these false gods, or will you turn and serve the one true God of the Bible? Today, you are at a fork in the road, and honestly, every single day you wake up, you are at a fork in the road. The path on one side is to serve and worship and sacrifice to false gods. The other choice is to do what God says, to serve Him, to worship Him, to realize He is far better than everything else. That is the choice that is before each one of us. Choose this day whom you will serve. The people listening to Joshua immediately responded. I'm sure you saw it as I read. They immediately responded. They said, we are going to serve the Lord. We got it. You've you've laid it out. The argument is clear. We're going to serve the Lord, right? And, And a lot of us, we've We've put these, like you can, some of these verses, you can put on a placard and hang them in your living room. We're going to serve the Lord. We've done the same thing. We are going to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, it's not going to be that easy. It's not going to be that easy. You can't. You can't serve the Lord. You can't do it. Which brings us to the book of Judges. The book of Judges tells us something very striking if we're to just hover over the book of Judges, we will see this. This is our second stop this morning. People, sinful people, defaults, right? Just their resting place if we if God doesn't do anything, people's defaults into ever increasing sinful idolatry. People defaults into ever increasing sinful idolatry. Remember what I said that the false gods always want you to give a little bit more? See how it's ever increasing? It's always going a little bit further, right? If, if you've been caught up in sin, you've gotten to the place where you're like, I never thought I would have been here. But how did you get there? One small step at a time people default into ever-increasing sinful idolatry. And what's really surprising, perhaps, about the book of Judges, until we start to look at our own day and start to see the same thing, what is surprising is that even the so-called people of God, even the people of God, even the ones that are supposed to be His chosen people, they get into this ever-increasing sinful idolatry. In the book of Judges, things are going to look pretty good when the curtain opens in Judges chapter 1. The people are going to be uh, continuing the conquest of the promised land, the land that God has given to them that God is providing for them, and they're going to go, and they're going to have some initial success. Joshua's still going to be alive, so there's a little overlap time-wise between the end of Joshua, the beginning of Judges, and so we're going to see, we're like, okay, things are, things are going well. They're obeying the Lord. They're doing what they said at the end of Joshua. This is, this is going well. Then we get to the end of chapter 1, again, still in chapter 1. We'll see this next Sunday we're going to see a lack of full obedience to God and how they enter and occupy the promised land. As the story continues to progress, one thing we're going to see is they fail to fully root out the people in the promised land. And even worse, they fail to fully put away the false gods of the people of the lands. They fail to do it. And at this point, when we get to the end of chapter 1, definitely by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, the trajectory for the book of Judges will be set. The trajectory of the book of Judges is a downward spiral. It's just a downward spiral. The book starts pretty high. Ah, the people of God taking over the promised land. They're obeying God. It's great. And then it just starts going down, and there's just a downward spiral book starts high, it ends really low. It starts with God's people taking the promised land. It ends with God's supposed people, the ones who said they were going to obey God, the ones who said they were going to worship God. It ends with those people, they stop even crying out to God. In the last several chapters, there's like one time somebody cries out to God. They stop even asking for His help. They stop even consulting what He would want them to do. I want you to turn with me to the end of the book of Judges just to see what happens at the very end of Judges. There's just one sentence that closes the book of Judges, and it is a condemning sentence. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see that? The condemnation of the people, and again, as we read the book of Judges, you will see this is absolutely a condemnation. This is not like, hey, everything was going well. No, no, no. This is a condemnation. The condemnation is that the people did whatever they wanted. All the problem, all the sin, all the destruction, all the death that we're going to see in the book of Judges, the summary of it all is because people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sound like what the culture is trying to tell us is the solution? Do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. Man, if it feels good, do it. I know this one's a little more antiquated and like from what, three, five, seven years ago. You only live once. Just do what you want to do, right? Here the Bible screams that the same thing is an enormous problem. So society is saying, this is a solution. Do whatever you want. The Bible is saying, here's the problem. You're doing whatever you want. Both of those things cannot be true. They cannot be true. Doing whatever seems right to you in the moment leads to ever-increasing sinful idolatry. As we preach through Judges over the next several weeks, this is going to become painfully clear, painfully clear. Doing whatever you want leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to separation from God for you and everyone around you. You may be in the habit of asking yourself or asking those around you the rhetorical question, what's the worst that could happen? Judges is going to answer that question. It gets really bad really fast. People default to ever-increasing sinful idolatry. Your doing whatever seems right in your own eyes actually has you in a nosedive. You are plummeting towards certain death, and the people around you, your culture, your society, is telling you to keep doing whatever you want to do, and all that is doing is accelerating you towards death. That's all it's doing. Do what you want. Isn't that how I got here in the first place? Do what you want. Just keep accelerating towards destruction. Well, Judges doesn't offer us a whole lot of hope. We'll see a little bit. But we need to keep reading, and we need to finish our study in this book, in the book of Ruth. To get out of this nosedive, we must continue reading the Bible. By the way, if you're reading the Bible and you get to a point where you're in complete despair, just keep reading. Like, I understand you got to get up and go to work and you got to just keep reading. The good news always comes later in the Bible. So just keep reading if you ever get to one of those stopping points. And so we're going to continue doing that. What I want to show you is what is a small glimmer of hope in the book of Judges, It is going to shine brighter in the book of Ruth, and it is going to come to full light in Jesus Christ. So our third stop this morning, Judges and Ruth, we see this, God is the only eternal covenant-keeping Redeemer. God is the only eternal covenant-keeping Redeemer. There is a thread throughout the book of Judges that is showing us something. You see, throughout the book, about a dozen times, the people of Israel are going to realize that things are going really poorly. Things are bad the thing that really helps them see that things are bad is because they're engaged in war, they're, they're caught up in slavery, or they're in a battle, or whatever the case is. Usually it's physical danger or physical stress that they have, and so they realize things have gotten really bad, and so what they do is they call out to God that God would save them. They say, God, would you save us? And what God does is He delivers His people. What is perhaps most encouraging about the book of Judges is that God always responds to His people when they call out to Him. Every time, every time we run into it in the book of Judges, when the people call out to God, He's going to respond. God always delivers them. He delivers them with what the writer calls judges. We have to understand though, that these are not judges who wear long black robes and sit behind large desks pronouncing who is guilty and who is innocent. That is not how the author is using the word judges in the book of Judges. No, these judges are more rightly described as military commanders. God raises them up to bring about a timely military victory, and then it's over their their role is done however each of these victories only lasts for a short period of time we're going to get a lot of time markers in the book of judges in total in total the whole book of judges is 300 years just to give you kind of an idea uh the time of peace after some of these military leaders these judges A lot of times it's 40 years, a lot of times it's less than 40 years, only one time is it more than 40 years. These judges bring victories, sometimes they're very uh, interesting and they're very big victories, but they're always very, very temporary. But then as Ruth opens up, and you'll notice if you're looking at Ruth, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 opens the book like this in the days when the judges ruled. So, in case you just pick up Ruth and you're like, all right, where am I? What's going on? Oh, we're in the time of the judges. So, in the time when the judges ruled, another story begins to emerge. It is a much quieter story than military. It's not loud. It's not, it doesn't involve thousands of people going to war with thousands of other people. It is a very quiet story. Most of you, are, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of Ruth, even if you don't have a lot of background reading the Bible for yourself or in church, you likely know the story of Ruth. If you want a beautiful story this week, you're like, I don't really need the depressing that you just talked about in Judges. If you need some encouragement and just a beautiful story, I encourage you to read the book of Ruth. It's also shorter than Judges. It's just a beautiful four-chapter story. It's a quieter story than Judges. In the book of Ruth, we find a love story that involves very few characters, very few characters compared to Judges. Certainly those characters that are involved in the book of Ruth could not have fully understood the significance their story would have. It's about a a young Moabite widow who follows her uh, mother-in-law, who is also a widow, back to Israel, and she finds a new husband who redeems her and provides her a son. So turn with me to the end of the book of Ruth. Notice how the story ends. Starting in verse 13, uh, Ruth 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The book ends in kind of an interesting way. The book ends with a very small wedding, if we could even call it a wedding. The book ends with the birth of a son, and the book ends with a genealogy. If you're familiar with the bible at all usually genealogies start out books of the bible or large sections of the bible they give us a genealogy and that leads into what is the point of the genealogy okay but this book ends with a genealogy so with this genealogy this birth of this son we learn that perhaps this story isn't ultimately about ruth trying to find love we learn that ultimately this Is not about the young Moabite widow finding uh, a way to sustain herself in a difficult world. Perhaps there is something more to this baby boy. Perhaps this offspring of a woman is the real redeemer that we're looking for. Perhaps Obed will be the ultimate redeemer of his people as the women cry out to Naomi, this is the redeemer that we've been looking for. Maybe it's Obed. Maybe it's David. That's where the genealogy ends. Maybe it's him. If you keep reading, you find out David becomes a king, and he certainly restores peace to the land through a myriad of trials and difficulties. Maybe it's David. As you keep reading the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you will discover that it is not Ruth that is the ultimate redeemer of her people. It is not Boaz It is not Obed, it is not Jesse, it is not even King David who will ultimately deliver the people of God. Instead, it will take a few more generations until we get to Jesus of Nazareth. The New Testament opens with a genealogy. A portion of that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is here at the end of the book of Ruth. And what we learn there is that Jesus is the true Redeemer of His people, Not Ruth, not Boaz, none of these others. Instead, Boaz, Ruth, and Obed are in the line of grace leading from Eve's son, Seth, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, generations, then through Ruth and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and King David, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Redeemer of His people. His redemption is full, and it is lasting. For all who God redeems through Jesus Christ, He renews the whole man, heart, soul, body, and strength. He gives us new desires. He replaces our sinful, idolatrous desires and gives us new desires, desires that are like His, desires that would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Desires that don't seek our sinful pleasures, but the eternally better desires to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to do so forever. I'm well aware that every one of us have walked into this room looking for some type of redemption some type of salvation, Lord, I'm in this situation, I want to get out of it. I'm in this problem, I want to get out of the problem. Unfortunately, too often we set our eyes too low. We seek limited, fleeting redemption from limited, fleeting problems. What we truly need today is lasting, eternal redemption. We do not ultimately need military commanders to defeat the bad guys over there or the Department of Homeland Security to protect us and keep us safe here. That's not our ultimate need. We don't ultimately need political leaders to rise up and fix the laws of our land. That is not what we ultimately need. We do not ultimately need a spouse for our lonely hearts. Ruth finds a spouse, but that is not her ultimate need. We don't even ultimately need a child born to us. What we need is redemption from our downward spiral of sinful idolatry. That's what we need redemption from. And we don't just need it today or this week, we need it forever because our sinful idolatry is leading to death and destruction for us and for those around us. We need redemption. We need true, lasting redemption, and we cannot earn it for ourselves. Like the Israelites in Joshua 24, we have committed to serve God, but we fail time and time again when we seek to serve Him in our own power. We need God to redeem us. We need God to save us. We need God to keep His covenant with His people. He said He would save His people. We need Him to keep that covenant. And we need Him to count us as part of His people. In the midst of our sinful idolatry, trust God's covenant faithfulness for eternal redemption. Now, you may be wondering what a proper response to this type of sermon should be. You might be asking, okay, so if the culture's vision for my life, for my best life is to do whatever I want, and God says that's the problem and He's the solution, what's that change even look like? How am I to live that out? In closing, let me offer just three specific things that I think we all need to do in response to this sermon. Three specific things. Number one, recognize your need for redemption. Recognize your need for redemption. You're not as awesome as you sometimes tell yourself. You're not as awesome as sometimes the world is trying to lead you to believe. Instead, you are lost and you are hopeless without God. You're in a nosedive, the destruction. You're in a downward spiral. Recognize your need for redemption. This problem doesn't go away by ignoring it. This problem doesn't go away by wishing it wasn't true. This problem doesn't go away by any of those things. It starts with recognizing where you are. Lord, I am a sinner. I have sinned. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the people around you. That's step number one. Recognize your need for redemption. Number two, stop serving the false gods that can never redeem. Stop serving the false gods that can never redeem. I know they're screaming at you, man, I know you've got this like angst within you. You know what's really going to help that is a little bit more money. How much more money? Just a little bit more. And then you go back to it a year later. How much more? A little bit more. How much more? Just a little bit more. I've used this example before, but if a little bit more really led to lasting joy and happiness, don't you think Jeff Bezos would have made enough yet? Right? Like, I mean, hes I haven't haven't even looked it up recently. He's somewhere over $150 billion of net worth. At some point, isn't it enough? Stop serving the false gods, the false gods that say, you know, the problem here is your boss, and you need to be the boss. When you're the boss, then, ah, then you're going to be okay. You just need to be in charge around here, and then it's all going to work out. It's a lie. Stop listening to the false gods. The problem with the false gods in our day is they sound like your voice, don't they? It's your sinful flesh. James writes that we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Stop listening. Stop serving the false gods that can never redeem. And Number three, cry out to God for redemption. Cry out to God for redemption. You may say, man, I don't even know what this looks like. This is the first time I've like opened my Bible. I was thankful Mike told us a page number. I would have Brian because, like, I don't even know what's going on here, but I'm just telling you, this is what you need. Like, call out to God. You can, where you are, you can bow your head or you can look up or you could just internal monologue, whatever you want to do. Cry out to God, God, that's me. I need you. I've tried my own way, it has failed. I need you. I need you to redeem me. I tried to like gurus I found on the internet, and they have failed me. I need you, God. I tried a bunch of self-help books, and it's not working. I need you, God. I've tried substance. I've tried to drink myself into oblivion or to go to the prescription medications, and it's not working. I need you, God. Cry out to God for redemption. Call out to him. Pray to him, sing to him, weep before him, cry out before God. Cry out to God for your eternal redemption. If you're a Christian, this morning is a good time to renew these things in your life. Remind yourself of these things. Change what needs to change in your life, but ultimately, call out to God for your continued redemption. One thing we know about Christians is we endure to the end. Right? And you're not at the end yet because you're here looking at me and breathing. Right? So you're not at the end yet. So you need God to continue to work in your life and to be your salvation unto the end. If you've never done this before, if you have never uh, called out to God in this way before, maybe you've even called yourself a Christian. You're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Because grandma was a Christian. Or I'm a Christian because I kind of went to church when I was growing up, right? Even if you've called yourself a Christian, if you've never done this before, if you've never recognized and acknowledged your need for redemption and called out to God that He would save you, it is quite possible that you have just adopted a false God that looks like Christianity, that has called itself Christianity. There are many of those around. You today need to acknowledge your downward spiral of sinful idolatry and sin and call out to God for your redemption. Do not delay. Today can be the day of salvation. I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we need your redemption. Every single one of us in here needs you to be our rock and our redeemer. We need you to save us. We are unable to save ourselves. The people around us, our friends, our bosses, our spouses, our elected officials, our celebrities, none of them can ultimately save us. You alone, Lord, can save. Please, Lord. Redeem us. Lord, I ask that you would redeem each one who is in this room. Lord, I ask that you would awaken hearts that are hardened to you. Some I know, Lord, have been hardened for years, some for decades. So, Lord, I ask you to take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pierce through their hard hearts. Lord, you are able. You are absolutely able. I pray that you would do so. I ask that you would restore those who are wandering away from you this morning. Perhaps they're one of your children. They've committed to obey you and to serve you, but they've just been caught up in false gods recently. Lord, I pray that you would convict them to put away those false gods today and cry out to you anew this morning. Lord, for those who are walking in your ways faithfully this morning, I pray that you would embolden them, embolden them to walk even more courageously before you. Lord, we ask that you would do a work among us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.